This is Debbie, and welcome to another brand new episode of The Offbeat Life, where I speak to inspiring individuals who ditch the norm to live their best life and become location independent. This week, I speak to Gabby Logan, who is an entrepreneur, travel journalist, and writer. Having travel as her passion, Gabby spends six to eight months out of the year on the road. She's able to stay on the road by writing for a variety of magazines and coaching others to create a lucrative writing career. Today, Gabby is based in New York City and continues to travel the world while implementing her incredible management skills that helps others live a life they truly want to live. Listen on to find out how to become a freelance travel journalist and create a steady income as a writer. for joining us for this interview with Gabby. Hey, Gabby, how are you today? Hey, Debbie, I'm great. It's so good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you because you have such a really interesting life. So can you tell us a little bit more about you and why you lead an offbeat life? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that why I lead an offbeat life is a great question because I think for me, it was kind of never a question whether I would or not. And when I left school, I was originally going to go to New Zealand. They have this visa program where you can go work in New Zealand for two years. And me and my friend didn't quite get our act together in time to get that done. And so then we ended up kind of taking normal-ish, you know, jobs that you take when you first get out of college for a year. And I never wanted to do that. So first, straight away, I quit that job and I planned to become a freelance writer And then, you know, various like life things happened and I had to, or actually I got invited to take a really cool job again, but it was always with this eye that I was going to quit and I was going to be location dependent. And in like 2007, I was reading all the location independent blogs at the time of which there were like two and learning about how to set up different freelance businesses, blogging as a way of really making a living then was new and not so many people were writing about how to do it successfully. And so that to me never looked like an avenue early on. And so I thought, well, I've lived in Italy before. I really want to live in Italy. I maybe want to also teach Italian. So my goal is to find a way to be living in Italy, but earning money in America. And so as I looked at how to make that happen, you know, I could do freelance graphic design work. There were a lot of different things I could do. And then I settled on, well, if I'm going to be in Italy anyway, I should write about Italy for magazines or websites or whatnot. And so I kind of fell into this idea very backwardly, I guess, of being a travel writer. A lot of people, I think, go into travel writing or wanting to be a travel writer maybe for love of writing or for love of travel writing. And for me, it was always, well, I'm going to need to earn money somehow when I live abroad. And, and this seems like the, the best way to do it that's going to be unifying kind of my purpose of being there. It's going to allow me to get to know new places and new people. And as I started doing that, it kind of coalesced that I was working and I had met someone who was living somewhere else. And so I was going to quit my job anyway. So I was like, great this is it. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to be freelance from now on. Everything's going to be sunshine and roses. And of course, anyone who's ever freelance knows that, you know, it doesn't go like that when you first start. So I quit my job and I, for a while, had this kind of lovely life, except not so much in the income perspective, where I could go and stay with other friends of mine for a week at a time and get to hang out with them in the evenings. And we would both kind of work during the day. But 
I had enough money to, to pay for my trips and to do all those things, but I didn't really feel like I had enough money to kind of be a person in the sense that if I wanted to buy a new dress and maybe even I needed a new dress because I was going somewhere hot and I needed something that I could wear there, it would always kind of be a question. And so I really realized that if I wanted to be able to travel where I wanted to travel, when I wanted to travel, and be able to really experience those places and not kind of be sitting there at the end of the evening every night in my little notebook going through my budget, like, oh, I bought an extra water bottle today, yikes, then I needed to kind of re-examine how I was doing my income. And so I was like, okay, well, I need stability financially. How can I do this? And for writers, especially travel writers, but freelance writers generally, there's always this kind of you know, hand to mouth, uh, like up and down feast or famine cycle mentality. And so I looked to what other people who were location independent with different types of jobs were doing. So I looked to graphic designers and web developers and other people like that. And I came around to this idea of working with clients on retainer so that I knew at the beginning of the month in my bank account, I had the money and I hadn't even done the work yet. And that really allowed me to change a lot about how I was traveling and how I was able to go about my life. There's a feast or famine type of lifestyle with a lot of writers. And you kind of went around that because of your observations from your other friends. Now, how do you usually pitch and who do you usually pitch to in order to get this steady and stable retainer type of income? There's a lot of mentality that you can't do this with editors. So a lot of times when people think about getting retainer income, it's with companies. And, I, and I'll totally explain how that happens. But one thing I want to say is that if for people who really are into the magazine aspect of it, like I said, for me, that was never really important. But I did end up falling into working with a lot of magazines, which was totally surprising because I went in with this kind of blogging background and web writing background and had no experience as a journalist. My degree is literally in another language. My degree is in Italian. And so I never expected to be writing for magazines. And I actually found out that there's a lot of magazines that you can actually have almost like a retainer type thing with them as well, where they assign you a certain number of articles every month, or, you know, typically it's going to be this or that. And that was a thing that I wasn't expecting that I, that I would love like for more people to know about, which is that whether it's, uh, there can be really small magazines. So it might be a magazine that has a really specific subject area, like sailing in British Columbia, only in British Columbia and only sailing, or, you know, something that is focused on a really particular type of food in a particular geographic area or something like that. Those magazines tend to need people who are very expert in that subject area. And those aren't, easy to find. And so if you get in with those editors, you can get into this type of situation that I found myself with where I would have one editor who edited four magazines and he might assign me like 10 or 12 articles for a month. So I might be doing like, you know, depending on the month, like thousands of work just for this one editor. And even if it was like a slow month with him, I would still have like two columns that I was doing all the time. So that's one way to go about it as a writer. And a lot of people think that columns are dead or that it's really hard to get those sort of arrangements with writers or that only really experienced writers can get those. Because if you look at like the travel and leisure and the Condé Nasts of the world and you look on the masthead, the people listed on the actual masthead with all the editors 
as a regular contributor or a contributing writer. They're always really famous people. But the thing is that there's just so many magazines out there. And a lot of these smaller magazines, their editors are really hurting, both for good professional writers and also for people who are familiar with what they need covered. Then the other way to go about it that I mentioned earlier is to write for companies. And so this is an area where, like I said, if you're not kind of very in love with the idea of seeing your name in print or that cachet of magazines, which is a great way to impress your family that you actually have a job, I have to say. I think my, seriously, my grandmother used to say that she thought I was a lady of leisure after I got married, which was when I started freelancing, until one of my articles appeared in this magazine called Tea Time, which is which it, if you look at it, it's like the consummate like, you know, old lady grandma publication with doilies and beautiful <laughs> teapots. And she saw one of my articles in that and then she was obsessed. And then she realized I had a real job. So magazines can be absolutely great for that. But for, for grandmas especially. <laughs> for grandmas especially. Yeah, but I know a lot of people who are nomadic where the grandmas are really a problem. Um, So it's important to keep the grandmas happy. But yeah, so working with companies, though, I think is kind of one of the easy and can be really fun, but maybe less glamorous ways to earn money as a travel writer. I actually have this friend who has a, a really long and lovely history as a magazine editor. And she was recently at Everyday with Rachel Ray, and she's been a freelancer for top publications as well. And we were recently at this really lovely conference for the craft of travel writing that I highly recommend to anybody that wants to learn about that. It's called the Book Passage Travel Writers and Photographers Conference, and it's in California in the Bay Area every August, and it's run by Don George. And so that conference, this person was was on this panel, and she was basically saying like, oh, you know, I know what I do isn't so interesting. You know, I edit content for, and she name dropped like this huge travel website that a lot of people would be very excited to write for. And so often writing for companies feels kind of less glamorous, but it's actually these days a really interesting place to put your stories. And if you're looking at having a nomadic lifestyle and having something sustainable, it's also a really great place to find those retainer kind of clients. So especially to your question about how to find them, I found that email is an astonishing tool that's really underutilized. I'm sure anybody out there with a blog gets a ton of these, you know, those horrible pitch letters we get about, you know, I want to help you with your SEO or your Instagram, and you don't even have to read like past the two words after hello to see, yeah, right, that this is an absolute, you know, form letter where they haven't looked at anything about you, where like you clearly don't need this and you don't even need to read it. And and we don't even have a huge site and we get so many of those that I swear it's like half of what my email person does is just go like go through those. So I think email's gotten a bad rap as a way to cold pitch people because of that. But business owners out there, as anybody, you know, listening to this podcast who has a blog or who's tried to start a blog knows, you have so many different hats that you have to wear. And you can't be an expert in all those things. And so if somebody is running a tour company, let's say this person has the first food tour company of barbecue tours in Kansas City. Uh, I've interviewed this person for a piece a while ago. You'd think like barbecue tours in Kansas City, what an obvious thing. And when she started it, it was actually food tours had already taken off, but there wasn't a barbecue tour in Kansas City. So she has so many things she's trying to figure out. You know, where is she going to get the vans from or the buses? Who's going to drive them? What happens if the bus breaks down? How does she make sure she has enough guides? How does she make sure that the restaurants are ready for her and that in the right time and that they have the samples laid out? How does she compensate for cancellations? Does she put her tours 
online and then hope people shows up or does she have them custom only? She has so many things to think about. And so approaching folks like that in a really helpful way about what content, whether it's blog content or Instagram content or any kind of content that you like to create about what that content can do for them can actually be really helpful in terms of taking things off their plate. So I've actually found that I've coached a lot of different people on this as well, that just reaching out directly to companies that are doing something you're interested in, that have a need for a type of content that you're good at creating and you like creating can be both lucrative, which is great, but also a really nice way to get kind of creative autonomy and be paid for it. Because often when we have our own blogs, our own channels, we spend tons and tons of tons of time on them um, and the compensation can come way later. And so this can be a really nice way also to kind of polish your skills and polish them in different settings while also getting paid. So that's one of the things about getting these kind of, they're called content marketing more generally, but getting these opportunities to work with companies on a retainer basis is just has so many wins for people that I really love to recommend it. But also for that, giving you the freedom of traveling and planning your trips is a big, is a big plus in my book. That's definitely a huge plus, especially if you want to get into the digital nomad lifestyle and not starve when you leave your nine to five. So Gabby, what do you exactly need to put on your website to land the jobs? It's so funny because I get asked that all the time and people ask me to review their websites. And the funniest thing is that the websites, they largely don't matter, but people will avoid starting for sometimes years because they're trying to get their website right. But the thing is that it's very rare for people to find you directly through your website when you're starting out. And it's especially rare for people to find you through your website, even if you're like two years in or three or four years in, that are really a good match for what you want to do. Because when you're out there creating your own gigs, then you have a lot of say in terms of how the the scope of that engagement, like what actually gets done is going to go. So if somebody comes to you through they've already thought of it and they find you, then they might know that they want somebody not just to do the Twitter strategy, but also to write the tweets and be responding to everybody. And you don't want to do that because that's a huge drain on your time to have to be like jumping up to respond to those things all the time. I actually often find that the people who do find your website are bad clients, but the question still becomes like, well, what if I email somebody to work with me? They're going to want to see that I have a website, right? And it's interesting because on the one hand, some people will go to your website. And on the other hand, some of them just won't. Some of them will be so busy that they'll look at that email and they'll say, yeah, sure, let's get on the phone for an hour and tell me what you can do. But I think in terms of what you absolutely need to have on your website, less is definitely more here. And for a few different reasons, people often kind of get caught up in writing up their service pages. And I worked with somebody who we were trying to narrow down what her services were going to be. And then we kind of picked three key ones that she was really interested in doing. And we had talked about a bunch of other ones she wasn't really very interested in. So we didn't want to talk about them. And then she went away and wrote up like nine different services in like 17 pages, (laughs) which is way too long to go on her website. But also it actually like confuses clients in a way because the interesting thing is that if you reach out to somebody for blogging and they don't need blogging, but you've shown that you are professional and, you know, you have the initiative to reach out to them and you clearly know what you're talking about, they might say, hey, actually, you know, I'm not sure what I want to do with my blog right now, but I would love for you to take over my newsletter. Could we talk about that? 
Or I've had people say to me like, yeah, you know, I know we just use our blog for testimonials, but the thing is we actually don't need new business right now. We have so many clients that go on trips with us every year that I was thinking about creating a microsite just for my existing clients, for them to learn all about the destinations that they're going to and stay in touch after their tours. So people think that on their websites, they need to put all these different services so people can see that they can do all these things. But what happens is if you can kind of really show, you know, like, again, less is more, but if you can really show cleanly, you know, that you're a professional, and that means having really great photos. I see sometimes people get really wedded to using their own photos on their website. But unless your photos are magazine quality, you're going to be better off using stock photos. And Unsplash is great for that, for anybody who hasn't been there. It's a really wonderful stock photo site that has a lot of travel-oriented photos. And they create a really nice aesthetic and kind of a sense of vibe and emotion, unlike your traditional stock photos. And the reason is that your website, the words that you put on there are so much less important than the visual that somebody gets, that you know, 1.7 second impression of what the colors that you've chosen, the lines, the amount of empty space, what that says about you as a person and as a business owner. And that's also one of the reasons that the text that you put doesn't matter as much because people aren't super likely to read it, especially if it's long. So I think it's really useful to have, you know, clean sight, good photography kind of focus on like a couple things that you do well and focus on the pain that the person who you might want to work with is experiencing. So, you know, if you're offering to work on something for a small business like a tour company or somebody who does travel itineraries for somebody, focus on how overwhelmed they are with time and how you're going to save them time. And that's much more important to address that necessarily than to address exactly what it is you're going to do for them. It's great to have a page that says, this is how I work. There's somebody I know who has a really great way that she goes about this. She's really clear that she only answers emails up until a certain time of day and after a certain time in the morning. And I think that is useful. If you've just started, it can be hard to put that together because you don't always know, but that can project to potential clients that you have a process, that you are a business. But again, that's not going into super detail on, you know, that you can make a website that has this, this, and this, and you know this many different types of WordPress plugins, because those things aren't necessarily things that people are ready to hear at the beginning of working with you. It's definitely understanding who your audience is and who your potential clients are and looking for the pain points, as you said, that you can help them with, which is really helpful. And it doesn't happen from the start. You know, you really have to figure that out. And it may take a little bit of time and energy and a lot of effort to figure that out. And we're still continuing to do that even as we're growing. Gabby, you have done so many things. What has been the biggest setback that you have encountered and how do usually handle them? You have such great questions. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that. Um, I feel like I have setbacks all the time. So it's hard to think of what the biggest one is. There's one story that I that I tell a lot that I can kind of share here. But like I said, I think that as as entrepreneurs, whether that's, you know, that you have a blog that you're building or you have a larger business that you're building, sometimes it's daily or once a week. There's things that just feel like they've totally shaken what we thought we were going to set out to do. And so I think to your point of how you deal with them, that's really important. But the, so, you know, one particular story that was a really big setback for me in terms of freelance writing was that I had gotten out of this place of, you know, working on just kind of like low paid web writing when I could get it. And I had 
set up some of these retainer gigs with clients. I had a really, really lovely client where I could write whatever I want. I was writing really long, beautiful posts for him. I could write really story-oriented things and do itineraries of different cities in Italy. And I could travel around and use his name and the connections. And then I was traveling in Portugal doing a story that ended up appearing in a newspaper in the States. And it was the week of the Boston Marathon uh, bombings a few years ago. And I used to live in Boston. And I had been in my kind of the place I was staying, working on an article for a national magazine. That was my first article on a national magazine. And I got it in. And then I started getting these messages from my friends, like, I'm okay. wanted to tell you I'm okay. That whole week when they were kind of trying to to track down the bombers, I was just kind of in in a state of feeling bad for my lifestyle in a way that I wasn't home and I wasn't around. And I couldn't, you know, go see my friends and things like this. And then the last day that I was in Portugal, I was cycling home and it was when the there was a car chase going through the city of Boston and kind of some surrounding areas to find the bombers and they were kind of shooting willy-nilly and, and it was a very dangerous situation. And I was cycling back to where I was staying and I just like wiped out on my bike. It was like one of these things where like my, my you know, my wallet and my phone were in the mud, my shoes were everywhere. I was like totally like torn up and... I didn't know at the time that I had a concussion, um, but I did know that I had a lot of cuts and I had a centimeter deep hole in my right hand and also a lot of scrapes on my left hand. So I couldn't type for a while, for about a month. That led to me having to let go of some of my clients that I was so happy that I had gotten. And like I said, I didn't know until much later that I had a concussion. So I couldn't work on the computer. Like I would look at the computer and get a headache or like start crying or, and I didn't know why. And it was probably not for like three months that I was really able to work a full day again. And I had a couple clients I'd been able to hang on to. I did manage to publish the story from this trip in a a good place, not the falling off my cycle, but about this place in Portugal. And then I like finally when I was feeling better, I was like, crap, like I need clients. It is now October or September, whatever it was. We're about to go into the holidays. People aren't going to be around. Like I need to get going on this. And so I just sat down for a week and every day I would do something slightly different. So one day I went through the newspaper, all of the newspapers in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., I think in Australia by circulation and everyone over a certain circulation. I was like, okay, hopefully they pay writers and I pitched them all. And then another day I went through and I just applied to a ton of stuff that I saw on job sites. And another day I went through and I think I did some new pitches to companies. And so every day I did a different thing. And then the next week, based on whatever worked well, I did more of that. And then I was able to build back up double what my income had been before quite quickly, actually. In that case, I, in terms of how I dealt with it, for a while, I wouldn't even say I was necessarily like, you know, grieving or down on myself, but I just didn't really know what was going on. And it's really hard, I think, to get out of those times. My my aunt passed away and someone there was another loss in my family earlier this year at exactly the same time, like on the same weekend when I was supposed to be attending a conference in the Netherlands, again, traveling and away from everyone. And uh, I, I think at that point, I kind of was like, like stayed in bed for the day. And then the next day I had to go on a flight to see some family that was in Europe. And so I picked myself up and I went on that. But Everybody, I think, deals with these setbacks differently, but I think the res- resiliency in what we all set out to do is so important, whether it's something that happens to you when you're traveling, like after I fell and had my concussion, my phone got stolen, well, uh, and like just things like that, that you you kind of have to 
you know, grieve for them and have your emotions, but then think about what's next. Like, what can I, what do I have control over here? What can I do? What do I really, what do I really want out of the situation? And what will, what's one thing that I can do that will pick me back up no matter how small? That's the hardest part. It's not just one thing. It's one after the other. And the hardest part is just picking yourself up and going through life and going through the motion, even though you're not feeling well. That's what leads you to becoming better. And then overcoming that is to just keep going. And even when all of these things are happening, because otherwise, how do you go, right? How do you keep going? And look where you are now, Gabby, you're successful, and you have all of these things. So you go through it and life goes on, right? Yeah, totally. But you know, like some of them are ones that are so there's nothing you feel like there's nothing you could have done. And like, still you sit there and you think about what you could have done. Like, I remember the first time I quit my job, this was this was kind of the one of the setbacks in a certain way that made me not so confident that I could freelance the first time was I had gone to Bali for like three or four weeks. And at the end of my trip, was this conference. And it was going to be the first writing conference I was ever going to. There was a, a panel on travel writing I had gotten into. There was another panel I'd gotten into. And then right, I don't know that I got it at the conference, but kind of like the day that these sessions were happening, I got horrible food poisoning. And I would like go to the session and then like go to the bathroom and throw up and come back for half an hour and go to the bathroom and throw up. Cause I was like, I have come all the way here for this. Like I need to at least try to go. And then I remember I had to stay like overnight in the airport in Jakarta or something because of the way my layover was on the way back. And I remember just sitting there and being cold and feeling sick and like hoping like that nobody like tried to hustle me. And it's like in those moments, you you always think, how did I get here? And when like you were saying, like, you know, it, in some ways, like I'm successful now and things like this. But I one thing that's always been really helpful for me is to think about what I would never give up what I have now that I that is just so you know that I love or that is so important and to think if anything if I had done anything differently I don't know if I would have that thing right now and so that that's one thing that when you're in those moments of like you know why did I do this how did I get there I like get here like I wish I had done x y or z like that's that's something that for me I find helpful and having this you know, offbeat life or location dependence or ability to work for yourself I think is something that is really trying but that sometimes those trials make us forget to be grateful that that we have this thing that most other people don't realize is possible. And that's the thing that, like you said, you have to remember. It's just being grateful for everything that you have and things happen for a reason. There's a reason why that happened to you. And sometimes it's a wake-up call as well and you have to pivot and it moves you in directions that you didn't even know you would be capable of or being into if that unfortunate incident didn't happen. Gabby, now you talked about all of these different encounters, the setbacks that you have, and we all get advice from people throughout our lives. What has been the worst advice that you have ever received? I feel like I probably get horrible advice all the time and I just (laughs) have trained myself not to listen to it. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting because I think that there's this I I was just writing up a workshop proposal, actually, and it's centered on advice and how people don't listen to it. And I think that what happens so often with advice is we hear somebody say something and we say to ourselves, like, that absolutely wouldn't work in my situation. And one of the things that that I've tried to do over the years is, is see for myself also, like, okay, what kind of kernel of this? Like, what does the person see that I need 
or that I could improve or something that's caused them to give me this advice. But I think, you know, like some particularly bad advice maybe that I've gotten would have been probably around like people telling me what I should do with my life. I remember when I first left my job, I had been kind of the second time around when I finally left my job for good. I had gone back because I got basically like invited to work at MIT, which is really prestigious. And and, uh, it was a good opportunity really to be trained as a professional writer by other people who did this in a high level institution. So I'm very thankful for that. And what happened was I left and then I got into freelance writing, kind of some communities and people said, wow, you know, you, you've been writing about science and all these things like that's really lucrative. You should do that. And I said, no, I left in order to travel and write about travel. If I wanted to write about those things, I had a very like, you know, not hugely paid. I mean, writing in a desk job is not as well paid as freelance writing, to be honest. But you know, I had a, a job where it was like only seven and a half hour days. There was great perks. I had really lovely colleagues. You know, I had a good desk, like all this stuff. I was like, I left that to do this. Like, why would I then set myself back from that goal by however many years by telling myself that I need to do this other thing first, that I need to do this science writing to earn money so that then again, I can have money that will allow me on the side to start travel writing. And that's kind of one of the reasons that I ended up starting the the website that we have now and doing one-on-one coaching is that I see a lot of people getting that same bad advice about why they can't write about travel full-time because there's other things that are more lucrative. And what I see though, that's interesting is that often the people who are like, oh, you should write about whatever, like you'll make so much more money that way. They're also not necessarily making the best money about what they're doing right now. So they also haven't cracked the code of how to do what it is that they're telling me to do. So I find with advice, like even if there's advice that I hate and I don't want to follow, I really like to think about who it's coming from and how much I value that person's insights as well. It's interesting because right now as a podcaster, I mean, it's been around for a while, but it's still kind of the wild, wild west when it comes to making income. And it's really interesting, Gabby, when I first started this podcast a year ago, people were telling me that I need a certain amount of downloads and it would take me years to get sponsorships. And lo and behold, I have huge sponsors and clients and it wasn't even a year. So, you know, you could definitely listen to what people are saying, but what their experiences are not necessarily going to be yours. So you have to try it out yourself in order to learn for yourself if they're the truth and whatever it is that's true for you and your own experiences. So Gabby, you talked a little bit about how you started to create income at the start. How do you continue to create income today? That's a great point. I'd love to have more income today. In fact, I'd love to go back to freelance writing because that was easier. <laughs> it's No, it's actually, it's funny. Like people come up to me sometimes at conferences because now I have this company that kind of centers around coaching and some other things to help people see the possibilities of earning well as a freelance writer. And sometimes I'll be at conferences, like we'll have a table at a conference and people come by and they say, so do you earn six figures? Because my book is called The Six Figure Travel Writing Roadmap. (laughs) And this year we will, like I've been doing it for two years. So now this year we're going to cross that threshold. But before I was like, no, (laughs) like I would if I was still writing. (laughs) And yeah, and I one thing that I've learned is that uh, I I love freelancing and I hate running a company. But the the thing that I was saying before that really was useful for me in terms of the freelance writing world is focusing on that that recurring income, that stable income that you know you're going to have. I think has allowed me to 
do more things with this work that I'm doing now to help writers. Um, because if I didn't focus on making sure that I had, you know, people in my coaching program who I know are going to be there for a certain time. So I know how much money I have coming in or people who are in our subscription magazine database. So I can kind of project how much money I'm going to have. I couldn't hire other people to work with me. You know, I couldn't have freelancers and have them have this ability of knowing that they'll still be able to earn that from me in the next few months. And so in addition to kind of helping writers, with what I teach and what I coach, to me, it's also really important that we're able to hire writers and support the freelance community in that way. And so what I've done is I kind of have like a very varied set of things that we do that earn money. And I've really kind of done a lot of experimenting over the last just over two years. I, I think I started doing this full time probably about two years ago today or yesterday. And so in that time, I really tried to look at like, what what do people want us to create, but they're not really going to pay for versus what can we create, but it's going to take us so much time that what we would get paid for defense. And then what can we create that we can actually run in in a way that makes sense? And it's not like different every time. We've kind of now solidified down that we have this magazine database that I'm really proud of it. None of it is written by me. It's all been written by freelancers. And so we have this kind of proprietary way that we break down magazines so that somebody who's never seen a magazine before, any magazine or the specific magazine can come and, and look at what we've got in the database and see like, oh, that's what this editor wants for this particular section of this magazine. I have an idea for that. I could see how to write that article. So that's one thing that we do. And that's available on a subscription monthly basis. But then I also have set up something kind of different with the way that I do coaching, where I have this hybrid thing where I do coaching, where we talk one-on-one. -on -one, but in order to make sure that we make the best use of that time, I have a bunch of other resources that are kind of added in to the subscription for coaching so that we don't have to spend on our call time like talking about me explaining to them how editors in a certain type of magazine work or how they can make this pitch idea better. I've created a whole bunch of videos that our webinars that we've done in the past and now we've got this big library so that basically I can be like, okay, it sounds like you're stuck on this. Go watch these two or three or five things and then we'll talk about next time where you are now and what questions you have and things like that. So we have also a subscription for our coaching where we include the travel magazine database and also the videos as well. So those are kind of the two two ways that I make money. But then the other way that I have I did a little bit more maybe last year than this year was that we do events. We do quite a lot of events and we started out doing kind of half day or like evening workshops all over the world. Like I went to Australia and I did two workshops in Melbourne and then I flew to Sydney the next day and did two workshops in Sydney and I've done them all over the US and, and I've done several in Europe as well. And so with the workshops, what is interesting is that the small ones don't necessarily earn out on doing something just for an evening, but having that one-on-one -on -one interaction with people then often turns them into people who are really great customers for us. Not all of them, of course, but it's kind of a good way for us to like qualify them and them to qualify us if it's a good fit. And then those people often end up working with us in a lot of other different ways. And then that leads to, we do these weekend and week-long workshops. And so it just happened that kind of accidentally when I was starting this company helping writers, we had this opportunity, my husband and I, to buy this ridiculous house for like ridiculously no money. 
um, that has seven bedrooms and literally like a 1200 square foot pub in the basement with a sauna. I'm not even kidding you. <laughs> and it costs like barely over a hundred thousand dollars. It was Wait, just, this- where is this? It's it's in the mountains near New York. Oh my and it was gosh! Like, it it was like a house next to it that had no land and like two bedrooms and one bathroom cost the same thing. It was just it was like with this weird confluence of fate. So it's this beautiful mid-century house that used to be owned by this huge Jewish family where the the father was like a big CEO somewhere, and so they built their dream house. And it's been it had been in this one family ever since. And so we kind of got it from the daughter of the original owner, who's now herself quite elderly and mostly lives in Florida. And it was in beautiful shape. And and I had already been thinking um, to at some point take over the house that I grew up in and use that as a space to do events. And so this opportunity being close to New York and you can get there with public transportation and all this stuff was just a great way for us to get into doing more events. So we use that now to do weekend and week-long things, both in travel writing and my husband's in um, in the computer space as an academic. And so we also do some events in that way and small business events. But I used to have a food blog and I have a certificate in nutrition and I've done a lot of catering in the past. And so it's cool because I can also bring my love of food and entertaining together into doing the teaching as well. And so we have a little farm that we run on site. So we grow everything there and then we kind of feed everybody and I teach. And it's great because there are these small intimate experiences where we can really make sure that everybody's getting what they want to get out of it. It gives us a lot of space to kind of make sure that everyone's on the same page with the learning points and also for the people who are there to contribute so you can learn from each other as well. That is so perfect and how it all came together and how you and your husband are able to mesh that in your businesses as well. That's really exciting, Gabby. Wow. Especially in the New York State for you to find that and be close enough to the city. That's amazing. (laughs) So, Gabby, let's fast forward 50 years from now and you're looking back at your life. What legacy would you like to leave and what do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, I think about this often because especially when if I'm having a rough day of like some annoying um, emails or something like like what like what am I why am I doing this and why do I continue doing it? Right. I don't necessarily care about being remembered in a larger way, but I, I, I would love for the people who I've enabled to create the life that they want to feel like a sense of, you know, gratitude towards the world or whatnot, that they've been able to do that and that they, that they're able to look back and, and see the 30 or 40 years that they could have spent in an office that they've instead spent, you know, flying in the middle of the week to go wherever, or, you know, spending more time with their kids or whatever that is. That, that to me is really important that they're able to look back and also be grateful for how they've been able to spend their time more so than, you know, thinking about me per se. It's hard to think about that now, but as you grow older, you think about what legacy you're going to do. And a lot of that is really about the people and the experiences that you can share with with everyone. So let's get to some fun questions. Some people like myself, I love interviewing, inspiring people like you and hiking. What about you, Gabby? What do you nerd out on? Recently, we've gotten really into board games. Like, I don't know how exactly this started, but it, it turned into, I guess, because we have the house that... We like sometimes in the evenings when we have uh, a group there or something, it's what we'll do after dinner to kind of decompress. Uh, so that's something that my husband definitely nerds out on more than I do, I think. Um, but I nerd out quite a lot on food. And in this in this way, we're like, I think a very enjoyable way to spend an evening is to sit and read a cookbook cover to cover. 
like I really enjoy learning the techniques of how to do different foods and, and kind of how different flavors go together and things like that. And, and I wish that I had more time to cook, but it's, it's interesting because being really nomadic, like I, I've had years where I'm, I've known among my friends for pulling weird stuff out of my suitcase. Like, of course, Gabby (laughs) travels with a French press and Kona coffee that she just picked up in Hawaii. (laughs) Why not? Or like, I'll show up somewhere and have vegetables that like are from our farm, but because I'm never here, like I just take a bunch and then take them wherever I'm going. (laughs) And so like, I'll show up somewhere with half of my like roller suitcase is like cucumbers and eggplants and stuff. So I think, I think food and like maybe not in the way most people do, but also like growing food that's, uh, that's beautiful and nutritious. And and like the fact that you can actually do that, I think is really amazing. That's how you know really about a person is what they take out of their bags. So (laughs) I love that. Gabby, having traveled to so many different places, what has been the most life-changing meeting with a person that you have ever encountered? It's interesting because I find that when I when I travel by myself, in a lot of ways, I'm I'm looking for for like a certain bit of of solitude and kind of like the observation of the experience. So I think some of the encounters that I've had with people that were really interesting might not even necessarily be me talking to them per se, but it might be us being together while something's happening. And so I remember um, the same trip where I got sick when I was in Bali, I was on this, this boat that was crossing between Bali and some other smaller islands in the Indonesian archipelago. And the seas were quite rough and like to the point where I was like, oh my God, everything I have for this trip is in that backpack in the other part of the boat and it's clearly going to fall out. And what am I going to do? And thank God I have my passport with me. And we were sitting there and like a lot of people were kind of freaking out. And at even at a certain point, like the, the people who worked on the boat started to look a little nervous. And this person next to me, I can't remember their name. I just remember that they had a British accent, just started chatting with me about, you know, the most kind of like mundane, like random stuff. And we just had this lovely conversation for the next three hours during this boat ride. And it was one of those things of like, you could call it kind of like the kindness of strangers or whatnot, but just that, that kind of sense of, you know, we're here, like, what else are we going to do? Let's make the most of this. I I think is, is kind of an ethos that I've brought forward through a lot of traveling and a lot of other things that in in many ways I can trace back to to that moment and that conversation. And again, you know, I don't remember what it was about, but like, it was just, it was the thing in that moment that was, that was centering, you know? Yeah, sometimes it's just a feeling that you get from that meeting that really resonates and stays with you for a really long time. Most of the time, you don't even really remember what you're talking about, but you get a feeling of something that's really good about it. (laughs) So is there any questions that you wish people asked you more of? Yeah, people ask me a lot of questions I wish they didn't ask me. Let me think of them. (laughs) No, it's kind of like, you know, you, um, there, I find this a lot that people ask me questions where their question shows underneath a a bigger question or a bigger assumption that really should be addressed. But questions that I wish maybe that people ask me more of, you know, I, I often get people kind of saying offhandedly, well, clearly I'm great at time management because I do so many things or something around me doing so many things. And, and half the time they don't even know that I also run a farm on the weekends and, and I think that people get kind of obsessed with the, the tactic element of like managing time or managing things. And and I wish people like asked more or, you know, wondered more or thought more about kind of like what are the more 
kind of mindset things, like a lot of what, what you shared as well, um, that you think about the space and that you've noticed with people. Like, I think those mindset things are a lot of the things that allow people to, to lead offbeat lives and do interesting things rather than just a tactic. That's not going to make a big difference for you. You know, there's so many things underneath it, like you said. What are you working on today that's really exciting to you? Today, actually, I'm starting something that is very exciting that I haven't really told anybody about. So that's a great question. I, through the place where I got my coaching certification, the the very interesting gentleman who is from Harvard Business School, but could absolutely not work in a company like to save his life because he is a, an entrepreneur like at heart. He started this program that he's kind of calling a power and influence program, which is such a corporate sounding name. But it's really fascinating in how he's like pushing you to like just ask a super super famous person if you could interview them and like, you know, just get out there and ask people like if they'll loan you $500 or something like this. And it reminds me of this book that um, Jia Jang wrote a few years ago about like a, a year, I think, of, of asking for things and, and just seeing what happened. And so I'm starting that just today, this afternoon, and I'm really excited to to do that. It's the inaugural batch of this program and to take that out to people and kind of help more people see like the possibilities of how they could really jump forward really quickly in their lives in terms of who they know and, you know, what they think they can get done and all those things through what I'm going to learn in this program. That is really exciting. I love that you're you're going to be going into this journey. And yeah, it never hurts to ask. You'll never get what you want if you don't ask, right? So that's such an important lesson. If our listeners want to know more about you, where can they find you? Yeah, my main website is www.dreamoftravelwriting.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Gabby, for all of these incredible tips. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie, and for everyone on the call for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Gabby. Make sure to visit theoffbeatlife.com. Again, that's theoffbeatlife.com to get the extended interview with Gabby where she shares how to use live events as a growth tool for your business. Hey, Offbeat family. I really appreciate you listening to this episode. I would love to hear more from you and what you think of the podcast suggestions on guests, topics we can discuss, or maybe you just want to be friends. Why don't we chat some more on Facebook at The OB Life or send me a message at hello at theoffbeatlife.com. I can't wait to hear from you.